Amen. Before we go to the Lord in prayer and then to his word, we just want to remark that we had just such a wonderful week last week uh, hosting Caleb and Leah Batchelor. Uh, it was so good to sit under the word of God as Caleb preached from Luke 1 last week. Uh, we have been so encouraged by uh, their ministry and just the feedback that we've already heard uh, as your elders lead you and as we together pray over this season in the life of our church. We just want to continue to open the door for feedback as, as you have been able to get to know the bachelors, as you've been able to sit under Caleb's teaching, and as you pray. Uh, and we also want to just invite you and ask that you would join with us in prayer over this season in the life of our church. We believe it is a serious and sober thing to call a man to pastor, to shepherd a body, and that the leaders that we recognize in this church make a great deal of difference for the future of our church. So we want to take that to the Lord with all earnestness. We want to ask that you as our congregation would do that together with us, that we would be in a spirit of prayer during this season as we seek to just evaluate and confirm the potential of calling the bachelors to serve with us. So with that said, let's go now before God in prayer and pray over that and the needs of our church together. Would you pray with me one more time? Almighty God, we do come before you as a church body, and we are indeed a happy congregation because our sin has been covered. And because Emmanuel has come, that, that you, O oh God, have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin and have to come to be with us. We can indeed trust you with our needs because you have shown that you have already given us all things in Jesus Christ. If you've not withheld your son from us but given him to us, would you not also give us every good thing? And so we do pray right now for wisdom as a church body. As we are in this season of prayerfully considering Caleb Batchelor to come serve as a pastor here, oh God, we pray for all wisdom and all discernment. Father, we pray that you would lead us by your spirit. We pray that we would be a people that commit ourselves to you on our knees in prayer. Father, we pray that you would lead the elders of this church under Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd, may they shepherd well this flock. Father, we also come to you with our needs as a body, recognizing that there are those in this room and in our body outside of this room that are hurting and grieving, that are suffering even during this holiday. Father, we pray for the widows and widowers in our body, for those who are separated from their loved ones. We pray for any who are feeling alone this morning. Oh God, would you be near to them today? Would you comfort them as Emmanuel, the God who has come to be with them? Father, we also would pray for those who are at risk in the midst of this winter storm this morning. We pray that in our nation you would spare lives, especially among those who are most vulnerable, oh God. Father, 
as we gather to celebrate the birth of Christ and then enjoy time with family today. Father, we remember that in many places in the world, Christians cannot gather to worship. In many places today, the church is being persecuted and being stopped from gathering in a room like this. Father, we pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters whom we haven't even met, but whose faith is being tested even this morning. Oh God, would you be with your church today? May we worship you, oh God, in spirit and in tr truth. And may, may we now hear clearly from your word as we study it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we celebrate that God has come. This is the message of Emmanuel, the name of Christ, which means God with us. That is, our God is not a distant God. He has come. He is tabernacled. He is dwelling among us. I wonder, has this been lost on you today? Or have you been marveling in this glorious truth that God has come? Kids who are in the room today, the great God who made everything that you see, this God became a man. He took on flesh. This is amazing. This means that the God of the universe who, who just spoke all things into existence, the God who existed before time began and who will exist into eternity future, the God who is the great I am, whom scripture says is in, in him all things hold together, whom scripture says upholds the universe by the word of his power, who is the, the linchpin to reality itself. This God chose to become a man. God Almighty, sovereign, all-powerful, inscrutable. God has come. This is the point of Luke chapter 2. It's the narrative. It's the story of how this happened. It's, it's boots on the ground, what happened when God came. It's what we're going to study this morning in Luke 2. So if you haven't already opened your Bibles to Luke 2, we're just going to read through and study this passage today. I'm just merely going to explain what I see that the Bible is teaching here for us. And my main point is that God has come. And he has come, one, in perfect providence, two, announced in glory, and three, demanding a response. Now, chapter one of Luke was long. We started several weeks ago. It was about 80 verses that we worked through through several weeks. And Luke had alternated, if you remember, back and forth between these two narratives, between John the Baptist and Jesus, and their birth, and the foretelling of their birth, and then their arrival, and these songs about their arrival. And now we reach Luke 2, and we go back to the story of Jesus. And it, it culminates, all of what we've been working through, these birth narratives, culminate in the arrival of Jesus Christ. And here we find a surprisingly simple account in these opening verses. So follow along in your Bibles as I just read through the first seven verses, telling us how this story transpired. Luke 2, verses one, verse 1 and following. In those days, a decree went out 
from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was a governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So here, in these first seven verses, Luke gives us the setting and the facts of Jesus' birth. And here we see that God has come, number one, in perfect providence. Years of hearing this text, I think for everyone in this room probably, at, at countless Christmas pageants or every Christmas time, we might have grown familiar with what we're reading here, what's actually happened. These are, after all, the brute facts of, of Jesus' birth. But I want to look back at them and look carefully at them today. If you'll remember, at the beginning of this series, I explained, I pointed to this passage and pointed out that here, Luke is doing the work of a historian, his painstakingly tethering the story to a certain person and place, to these rulers and to this time, showing that these, this is a true story that actually happened to a specific Roman emperor and to a Syrian governor. Well, Caesar Augustus, who we see there in verse 1, is also known as Octavian, he was known for his administrative organization of the Roman Empire. And this census was likely a means of assessing taxes. It required Jewish families to be sent back to their original homeland. For our story, that has been unfolding with this couple as we've been following them over the last couple chapters, we see God's providence at work through this. Now, what do I mean by providence? This word, I, by using this word, I merely mean that God is arranging history for his purpose. God is orchestrating something here for what he wants to accomplish. Verses 4 and 5 show us that this census sent Joseph and Mary, this couple, to a very specific area, to Judea, and to a very specific town, Bethlehem. Joseph was in the royal line of King David, the, the line of the Messiah, the promised one. Well, why is Luke showing us that this couple needed to be sent to the city of David in particular? Why such detail included for where this baby would be born? Or this, why is this redirection in their story emphasized so clearly? It seems that Luke wants to point out how history came together so that this couple would end up precisely in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. But why? You all know this probably. But about 700 years before this text was written, outside of Jerusalem, there was a man of God whose name was Micah of Moresheth. Now, Michael of Moresheth was known to be uh, filled with the Spirit of God. And so he was filled with God's spirit, and he was known to be a prophet. He prophesied. In Micah 5, 2, we see that God's spirit had told this man of God that a ruler will eventually come for the people of Israel. And, out, and this ruler will specifically come out of this town, Bethlehem. The Davidic Messiah will come 
from this place specifically. And so here in Luke, we see that this prophecy of 700 years ago is being fulfilled. God is orchestrating history to accomplish what he said would happen. Now, surely Caesar Augustus, verse 1, thought he was being a prudent emperor. Surely he thought his, this was his decree that he was making, right? And surely Quirinius, in verse 2, thought that he was being a, a compliant governor. He was merely working along with the emperor to, to do this registration. After all, this wouldn't be the only registration he would do. This is just the first. And, and surely Joseph, from his perspective, thought he was just being an obedient citizen, going where he was told to go and registering as he was told to register. And perhaps even Mary thought that she was being a, a, an obedient wife and, and citizen as well, a good betrothed wife and doing what needed to be done, going along with Joseph. But friends, the Almighty God was behind this, orchestrating history to fulfill his promise. It was God's design to take this young girl to Bethlehem, to fulfill the prophecy of old, and that's what's happening here. But notice what also is God's design. See, in verse 6 and 7, we read that while they're there, the time came for her to give birth. Jesus was born. And then this perfect providence culminates not just in Bethlehem, but in a feeding trough. All right, you've heard this story a lot, but just think on that one more time. A, a feeding trough, a manger where an animal eats. The phrase, lying in a manger, that Luke uses here, he uses three times throughout the story. It seems that Luke wants to emphasize this is where God's providence led to. The child would be born and placed in this feeding trough as the king. Now, we're familiar with the fact that verse 7 says there is no room for them in the inn. This inn likely refers to a public shelter where a family might stop over. We're not told exactly where Mary landed, where, they're giving, where she gave birth. It, maybe it was a stable, maybe it was a cave, but it seems to be at least among the animals because this, she wraps up the child and she uses this manger as a crib. What, what a beautiful providence. What an amazing choice of God to do this work, to send this couple to this time and this place, not just to fulfill history, but to say something, his, his moving emperors and guiding governors, putting them where he will so that he could arrange to send his son to be born in a place of utter humility. Utter humility. This is not a throne. He will be born instead among the animals. Now, friends, let me just pause here. Think on this humility of our Savior. If God was providentially working to send Christ to a manger, should we expect anything less as his followers? Many of us are happy to see Christ in a feeding trough, and meanwhile, happy to see ourselves placed on a throne, are we not? Christ's very first moments as a human beckon us who would be his followers, to humility, 
reflecting on this humility of Christ's arrival, John Stott calls out those who act like Christians but have a sense of self-importance about themselves. Stott writes this. It's not me, it's Stott. All right? He says, The Christmas spirit does not shine out of the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives, even as a newborn, on the principles of making themselves poor, spending, and being spent for others. Friends, does this manner of life, this humility reflected in this child, reflect you and the way that you are following him? Do you actually follow the Christ who started in a manger in all humility? Well, let's, let's continue on. Christ not only came in humility, but next we'll see how he was announced. Follow along with me in verses 8 and following as I read the next segment of this story. We read in verse 8, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So here we, we see our second point. God has come. Number two, he is announced in glory. Luke here changes the scene, and he goes outside the city to this quiet hillside where these shepherds are watching their flocks. And for the third time in these birth narratives, back and forth, we see again an angel appear. And again, as is common, this angel comes as a messenger, bringing a message from God. But this time, Luke tells us, notice in verse 9, that the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. Imagine this. The, the glory of the Lord, God's glory, shining around these men, surrounding them. What, what must this have looked like? We're not told much. Now, we, we are told that it was shining, and oftentimes in Scripture, God's glory is seen as this bright light shining forward. But whatever it looked like, it was this dramatic change from a dark field at night to all of a sudden God's glory just surrounding these peasant men. Understandably, they were just nervous. They weren't just wondering. Luke says that they were filled with great fear. By the way, I've mentioned this other times, but if the angels who are merely dwelling in the presence of God consistently evoke this type of fear when they appear, what type of fear does God himself deserve? Well, similar to these other appearances that we've already seen, here in Luke's book, the angel tells the shepherds not to be afraid, and then he announces the birth of Christ in verses 10 and 11. The message of this is joy that a Savior and Lord has come. 
joy, happiness, not fear, joy. Christmas in our culture is filled with this idea, isn't it? Joy. Kids, I bet you would say that you had joy this morning when you opened Christmas presents. Or we might find this on an ornament on a tree, or we find this in giant letters out in the front of someone's lawn. J-O-Y, joy, right? We sing songs of Christmas cheer, or this evening we'll listen to Buddy the Elf tell us that we should be happy again this Christmas. We give gifts. We hope to bring happiness to one another. We all want to be happy, and our culture knows it. We desire joy, do we not? But look at the reason why this angel said we are to have this joy. The joy is not just inspired by some sentimentality of the season. No, the messenger's reason for joy, verse 11, is because there is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ here means Messiah or anointed one, the one who was promised from of old. The word Lord here refers to a new authority. No longer Quirinius, no longer Caesar Augustus, but a new Lord was being born. And the word Savior refers to someone who rescues people. This is what we've already celebrated in this service, isn't it? Friends, Jesus' birth brings joy because as the promised Savior, he rescues us from our sin. Now, I'm guessing everyone in this room would desire joy. We're all on the same page with that, right? But how many of us are ready to acknowledge that we desperately need a Savior? That we are wrong and in sin in our lives? That we have wronged our Heavenly Father? How many of us would want a Lord, a new authority in our lives? We'd happily take the message of joy and leave behind, so often, the message of Christ's lordship and his work saving us as those who have wronged God. But here, the message comes together, and the angel tells us that this is the Christ that's being offered. Christ, the bringer of joy, who is our Savior and Lord. I just would encourage anyone here today, if this is a new message, or a new message that you heard us declare earlier through the Lord's Supper, Talk to someone today about how you can have your sins covered. There's perhaps nothing more important that you could do, certainly nothing more important than you could do this Christmas. Well, for the shepherds that day, this good news, this gospel that they brought, included a sign. Did you see the sign? It's that this Savior would be wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So here these shepherds are, listening to this angel. God's glory is shining around them. They're, they're trying not to be afraid. They're, they're perhaps thinking about, okay, that's an interesting sign, right? A manger. All right, we'll go, perhaps go find this. But then what happens next in verse 13? Verse 13 says that suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. So this happened suddenly. This was without warning. No heads up. All of a sudden, these fearful men were unexpectedly met by an entire army of angels, heavenly hosts, an entire crowd, a, a, a multitude spread out, 
praising God. Luke says that this army was with the angels. So we don't know. Perhaps they were filling the fields in front of the shepherds and, and all around their sheeps. Their sheeps. Let's go sheep. They were all around their sheep, right? Or perhaps they were in the sky above, singing from above. We don't know. There was this giant crowd, this army, this host of angels together worshiping God. We get pictures of this great army elsewhere in Scripture. First Kings 22 describes a great host of heaven that was surrounding the Lord God, Yahweh, as he's seated on his throne. So it seems that this here is a royal entourage of the king of the universe. And then they spoke and they used their voices to praise God. We get other pictures like in Revelation 9, which talks about a multitude, a host from heaven, praising God, and we read there, sorry, in Revelation 19, that their praise is described as the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. What must have it been like to be one of those shepherds that day, to hear, hear these peals of thunder cry out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased king's birth. The king, the king of the universe, his birth was being announced. We looked at this last night. I won't tarry on it. Let's move on lastly to my third point, which is that God has come, number three, demanding a response. This announcement to the shepherds demands a response. That's the flow of the text. When the king arrives and his entourage announces his presence, those who hear respond. That's what happens. Back in 2013, my wife and I were back visiting the United States, and we made a trip up to Manhattan in New York City. We were enjoying the day together, walking around Midtown, and on our way, I think, to Rockefeller Center, when the streets around us began to be closed down, there was a buzz in the city. Something was clearly happening. Fences were being set up. Crowds were forming around the city. And we got word that then-President Barack Obama was in town. He had traveled to New York City to address the United Nations General Assembly. And we quickly found out from the word around us that, he ha that he, we happened to be rather near his motorcade path. He was about to pass by. Now, regardless of your political perspective, it's not every day that you get a chance to see a sitting president. So we ran with the crowd. And we went up and we stood on the edge of the barrier to witness the presidential motorcade come sailing by us and to see the president of the United States riding in his armored car. We exchanged waves from just a few feet away. We're basically best friends with him now. But here, here's the idea I'm getting to. R realizing we were close to this sitting president, we rushed off to see him. What a small illustration this is in comparison to those shepherds who, who got up and ran to see this new king. Look at how it happens in verse 15. We read there, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So here in this final section of the text, the angels leave up into heaven, and the shepherds quickly realize that this was significant, and they must respond. Notice in verse 15 that they didn't doubt that this was the Lord revealing this message to them. They believed that, and so they ran with haste, and they found exactly what they were told they would find. They found Mary and Joseph, and they found the baby lying in a manger. Now, because they weren't quiet about what had happened, verse 17, we get to see now three different responses. Luke seems to be emphasizing these three different responses to this announcement of this new king. Notice them with me. First, consider the response of the people. You see, in verse 17, the shepherds seem to be telling others what they had heard and seen. And then we get to verse 18, and we read that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Many people seem to have heard this story. Apparently, the word got out, and they wondered. Now, the word wonder here, by the way, is, is not like the English word that we use to be curious, like, I wonder what we're going to have for dinner tonight. I'm curious to see what it is. No, this word means to wonder, to stand in wonder of, to marvel, to revel in, to be amazed. And, and very interestingly, this is a word that we're about to see commonly throughout Luke's gospel as we move forward. God is at work in Christ, and regularly people stand in amazement. Even last week in chapter 1, verse 63, you remember the people marveled, it's the same word, at Zechariah and what happened with Zechariah, naming John. Or next week, we'll see later in verse 33 of chapter 2, Joseph and Mary will marvel or wonder at Simeon's prophecy about Jesus. This happens quite a bit. People are seeing Jesus Christ, and they are astonished. They're marveling. But what also happens quite a bit is what seems to happen here. Luke highlights that though Jesus left people in astonishment, nothing more with the crowds seems to happen. This will get louder in the, the coming narratives. Time and again, people will see Jesus, stand and be astonished, and then do nothing else. It's a theme in the text. It's the reason, I believe, why verse 19 begins, when it talks about Mary, to begin with the word, but. Because it wants to contrast the people who stood and saw and were astonished, and Mary, who responded. We'll see it more in coming weeks, but I still want to pause here and think about it now. Because this absence of any true response, if a true king has arrived, 
and he has been announced by an army of angels, demands a response. Daryl Bach writes this. He says, The report from the shepherds tickles the crowd's ears, but it may have missed their hearts. Friends, please hear me. Mere amazement is not a sufficient sign of true faith. Oh, that's part of it. We certainly stand in wonder of the king. But that's not all of it. True faith responds to our king. What does this look like today? We're afraid that too often churches are filled with those who desire to hear a powerful message, a beautiful song, a performance, and perhaps an inspirational sermon. All these can be good things. But many come to church seeking amazement or amusement or entertainment. Many come seeking to have their ears tickled. It's easy to want a a sense of spirituality when we come to church or a sense of spiritual encouragement or even want to just hear some truth and then leave it there. But merely hearing of God's great work is not enough. Biblically, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will hear his astonishing words, yes, but then you will believe them by faith, and it will pr- produce fruit in you. It will produce repentance in you and a changed life in you. You will want to join with other Christians and even come and join a local church. But if there is no fruit of response, if there is no fruit of repentance in your life, then you should be worried. You could be among those whose ears are tickled, but whose hearts are unchanged. You could be like those who hear of a king arriving and yet don't respond. J.C. Ryle once said that the saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. Don't let that be you today. Notice secondly, though, Mary's response. Verse 19, as I mentioned, begins with this key word, but. Luke intends Mary's response to stand in contrast to those who merely marvel. Instead, we read that she treasured up all these things. It seemed she held on to these things and didn't let them go quickly. We read in verse 19 that she pondered them in her heart. It seems that Mary reflected carefully on what she was seeing, and she was giving it thought. Or as one commentator suggests, while holding on to this, she seems to be trying to make sense and plumb the depths of all she had experienced. Mary had a faith that was seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding. Treasuring, yet pondering. Believing, yet still growing. And this is in line, by the way, with what we see of Mary throughout the Gospels. In stories like at the the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2, we see that Mary seems to believe in Jesus' significance, but is still growing in her understanding of what this really means. Oh, friend, if you're here today and you have heard and believed by faith, but you know that you still have areas to grow in, be like Mary. Treasure up what you hear 
pay attention. Don't merely stand in amazement, but seek to understand. Attend a local church like this one, or another healthy one. Give yourself to reflecting on who Jesus Christ is. Very practically, this is what we're going to do in 2023. We're just going to simply gather every Sunday morning at 1030, do what we did this morning, open up again the book of Luke, and study through it and see what we can understand about who Jesus Christ is and how it will affect our lives. We just believe that doing that week in and week out will affect us. We will grow. It's a bit like going to a gym. You don't just go once, but over the long haul. You go week in and week out and, and see over time the muscles grow. Friends, be like Mary. Ponder, treasure, and seek understanding. Lean in. We should conclude. Let me conclude with the final response to this king. What did the shepherds do? You know the answer, but look again with me in the text. Verse 15, they first seem to believe that this message is from the Lord, from God. Verse 16, notice they got up and they ran in haste. Verse 17, they began telling others what God had done. They shared the message they received. By the way, I just have to imagine that verse 17 is not a polished presentation. They didn't have three points and an illustration to tell others about Jesus. I have to imagine that they merely just went out and they talked to the people they saw. They tell, told others what they had heard and what they had seen. And then in verse 20, we read, they returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Friends, these men had seen the glory of the Lord. They had heard from God, and they had to tell others. They responded by believing God's word, then pursuing Christ, then telling people, and then rejoicing and glorifying God. What an example to us today. Have you seen Jesus Christ? You should not be able to help but tell others about that. Do you believe God's word? Then tell others, like the shepherds did, and praise him. Do you believe that the king has come? Then tell others and praise him. Have you seen Christ with the eyes of faith? Then tell others and praise him. Have you tasted of the glory of God? Then tell others and praise him. Oh, church, let this be us this year. Let us be a church that sees the glory of God, takes God at his word, then goes out and tells others and come back rejoicing and praising God for it. Let's pray to this end now. Oh God, we praise you for sending Jesus Christ. We praise you for the glory that we see in Scripture of our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior. Oh God, may we be a people that go and tell others of this good news of Jesus Christ. May we rejoice and praise you for what you have done. We pray this in his name.